This is Over the Culture Podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like that team up north. And I'm your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Black, Reaper Sutherland, Luke Fly, talk with the most interesting blurred in podcasting, the troll of trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. It's November 28th, 2021. 21. And this is Steve G eating crow. Yep, I'm eating crow. It's not good at all, but I got to do it. I declared victory for my Ohio State Buckeyes last Sunday. I just knew we were going to win. I mean, the Buckeyes have been beating the Wolverines the last 10 years, right? Right? Yesterday proved otherwise. That was not the case. After 10 years of owning that team up north they finally got their time to shine good for you khaki pants good for you your job's not as much in jeopardy Harbaugh and I gotta give it to them they came ready they came to fight the Buckeyes I don't even know if that was the Buckeyes is that the same Buckeyes I've been following my whole life can't be the same Buckeyes And I I could say, yeah, we played at their place. I could say, yeah, it was the snow, and they're used to that, even though Ohio's a cold state, too. It snows in Ohio, but, you know, it's colder in Michigan. Um, So they kind of had the edge there, but either way, they won that game, and I got to give it to them. They came to play. Ohio State did not The two possessions before first half, a field goal and a kickoff, a punt, three and down, three and out. And, uh, you know, I got to tip my hat off to the team up north. But, you know, it's going to be another fucking 10 years before you beat us again, you sons of bitches. Fuck you, motherfuckers. And I like Ryan Day, but he's no urban. He is no urban. And we didn't have a full roster. We were missing a guy, uh, Master Teague. Master Teague, I call him. We need everybody for this game. This is the game. The Z game. We had Olave. We got CJ Stroud. But, man, you know, hey, get him next year. I don't think we'll have Olave. I believe he's a senior. But Stroud, he's a freshman. And, uh, yeah, man, it's growing pains. (sighs) I got that date marked on my calendar, 2022-22-22. So I'm not thankful for that. You know, and my bar, I'm, I'm a realistic Buckeye fan. I have friends who expect us to just win it all every year, and that's just not how this works. You can't win every year. But my mark for a successful Buckeye season to me is beat the team up north and win your bowl game and we failed to do one of the two now of course we're going to get some bowl game I don't give a fuck what it is but better beat whoever the fuck better win that one can't win the conference that's done 
but yeah. And I'm not thankful for my Cowboys losing to the Raiders. November, you've been a shitty month. You've been a very shitty month, November. How dare you? Cowboys lost, what, three of the last four? They beat Atlanta, but you're supposed to beat Atlanta. You're supposed to beat the Raiders. They're a hot fucking mess. They're a bad reality show. Fire your coach midway through the season. Wide receiver kills someone with a car. Another wide receiver pulls the strap out and goes viral. And we lost to them? What the fuck, Cowboys? Come on. Jerry's kids? I was not thankful for that. It was a good game. Pulled out some unbelievable plays later in the game, but still. I don't give a fuck about none of that shit. We lost to the Raiders, the Vegas Raiders? In Dallas? Houseway. And I I got some unfortunate news over the week. One of my uh, former co-workers... Uh, Abel, Abel was his name. Uh, he was actually a Raiders fan. I found out that he passed away last week and, uh, I, I still don't know the cause of death, but he was dealing with some health issues. He was a, a diabetic and a really good guy, a really nice guy. He was from Los Angeles. Uh, I believe East LA, um, Raiders fan, like a LA sports fan through and through uh, a Raiders fan, Lakers fan, Dodgers fan, the whole nine probably uh la sparks fan too shit and uh he was older than me and uh he's gonna be missed man it it sucks to hear that once again november you're just piling it on man and um yeah man like i said ironically his team is the raiders my team is the cowboys and uh I i like to think that uh this game was for abel you know, even though my team should have beat your team, this one was for you, buddy. Um, I, I remember going out after work, meeting up with him and his boys uh, on the north side of Houston. We would go to this uh, Hispanic joint. I, I don't remember the name of it. It might have changed names. It might have been shot up several times. And uh, speaking of shotting, getting shot up, uh, one of the times I was kicking it with Abel and his buddies, Uh, As we were leaving in the parking lot, a truck whizzed by me and just lit out some rounds in the parking lot. And I felt those. I didn't get hit by the bullets, but I felt the speed of those things. Like I felt the wind like there's no telling how close I was to any of those rounds. But after that, I was like, yeah, bro, uh, Man, you cool, Abel, but I don't know if I could come back and kick it to this place again. I kind of almost got shot, bro. Abel was like, oh, man, I just, I think he ended up keep going. Abel went hard, man. Abel went hard. Harder than me in my 20s. And I went fucking hard in my 20s. But yeah, man, rest in paradise, my guy. Rest in paradise. So over the week, I saw the latest documentary on HBO Max called Music Box. DMX, Don't Try to Understand. And it's 
focusing on the final year of DMX's life, uh, 2019, I believe it was. And there's a part in the movie where he's speaking to his son. They step outside and it's just him and his son. And just the look on his son's face, listening to his father speak. And I don't know if he knew at the time that the end was near. He knew that it was a possibility, but I know knowing what I know now, watching this scene, knowing that the man is no longer with us. Uh, and they had a very, it was a genuine moment between uh, father and his son. And after DMX said what he said, you know, him and his son had just a warm embrace and you can't help but get the feels but music box dmx don't try to understand music box they do some really good documentaries they released one earlier this year on woodstock 99 and i believe they did the alanis morissette documentary if i'm not mistaken that was released earlier this month but yeah man check that out if you're a fan of DMX and of course they talk about the trials and tribulations throughout his music career and his personal life, his relationships uh, with his significant others, uh, his ex-wife and his children. Um, yeah, if you're a fan of the man, Music Box, DMX, don't try to understand. Uh, also on HBO Max, HBO Max has been killing it. They released a dramatic re reenactment of the the murder of Kenneth Chamberlain it actually came out in 2019 but they just recently released it on HBO Max and it's called The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain uh, it's directed by David Medell starring Frankie Faison uh, from The Wire fame uh, he was the police officer I believe the the sergeant or the lieutenant one of I don't know those uh, ranks but yeah, he was from The Wire, the older black guy. Uh, and Frankie Faison plays Kenneth Chamberlain. Um, he's the real life titular character. And it's based on the police shooting of Chamberlain that occurred on November 29, 2011 in White Plains, New York. Uh, extra emphasis on the white part. Uh, Morgan Freeman and Lori McCreary serve as executive producers of the film. And it's very sad. Um, it's, it's worth watching because this is a real event a true story that happened and at the end of the movie they play some of the audio and i mean to get the gist of it it's basically about hour and a half just about two hours of police officers in white plains new york knocking on this man's door and he basically had a a wellness check it was a wellness check from the officers uh, because his life aid medical alert necklace was inadvertently triggered and police were just nagging him knocking on the door and he's telling them that he's fine he doesn't want any problems and he tells them no please do not he's ha he has asked them in so many different ways please do not do this please and they're knocking on his door they're threatening this man this elderly black man, he was 68 years old and he was a retired Marine at that. Retired Marine and a 20 year veteran of the Westchester County Department of Corrections. And he wore the medical alert pendant due to a chronic heart problem. And they were persistent. It's some of the worst shit. And it's a reminder that fuck the police, that part. That, that's a reminder right there, fuck the police. And I know not all cops are bad, but damn, 
the ones that aren't bad, I don't think they're speaking out enough. Because one of the officers, the, the main one, the culprit, the main culprit, he called him a nigger. He just let his animosity get the best of him to where he just voiced how he really felt. There were cops that were seeing fucking red. Having this man killed was their M.O. It showed. How can you just persist persistently fucking beat down on this man's door? He's telling you, please leave me alone. Please alone. I'm okay. I can leave now. And that good cop, bad cop shit. Throw that shit out the window. That man died when he didn't have to. Somebody could have stepped in and stopped this shit. The lady, the operator who kind of orchestrated this wellness check, she shares in this L. She needs to take an L along with the White Plains police officers. Oh my God. The DMX documentary gave me the feels. The shooting of Kenneth Chamberlain, that gives me a whole different feel. Yeah. It's worth watching once. I don't know if I can watch that shit anymore for the rest of my life. I didn't synced enough. Already didn't synced enough. But if you want to see this shit, it's called The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. Also on HBO Max. I just saw this the other day. It's called 8-Bit Christmas. It's a Christmas movie starring Neil Patrick Harris. And uh, it's set in the late 1980s. And he plays a, a guy named Jake Doyle. And he's retelling his story as a little boy in the 80s. And he plans to get a Nintendo Entertainment System before everyone else. And it, it, it's a good movie um, in an innocent way. It, it's good to watch things that are relatable to me when I was a kid. And in the 80s, the Nintendo Entertainment System was everything. Everything. Every kid from my generation needed to have it. Had to have it. I got mine. I'll never forget. Christmas of 88. Donkey Kong came with it. Some people got the Mario Brothers slash Duck Hunt along with the gun package. Mine came with Donkey Kong and I was okay with it. I was five and I was just glad to have an NES. I finally got the Nintendo. The other shit can come later. I'll get Mario later. Mike Tyson, yeah, I get that shit later. Tetris, yeah, all that. Wrestling, I'll get all that, yeah. That'll come later. But I got the I got the big toy. I got the main toy. That makes it possible to play with the other little toys. So yeah, 8-bit Christmas. It's got Doogie. Neil Patrick Harris. Uh, he tells the story of how uh, he wasn't getting that motherfucking Nintendo. And the links. The crazy thing about it, it's just... Y you can't take certain movies serious, and this is one of them. The, the links that these kids went through, and I get it. it. Like, the NES was the craze in the 80s for us 80s babies. I get it. But they went complete Ocean's Eleven fucking Boris and Natasha with it. They devise these schemes, these ploys, these plots 
Now, mind you, these kids were like, what? They're supposed to be in grade school. It's got some funny moments. It's got some clever moments. I would prefer watching this smoking the marijuana, though. I would prefer that watching any movie. But with this movie, it enhances the experience. 8-Bit Christmas, also on HBO Max. Something else I want to touch on, uh, it's NBA-related. And over the week, the Lakers played the Pacers sometime earlier in the week. And... uh, there was a stop in the game because LeBron had uh, a couple. It appeared to be a couple. It was a, a man and a woman. Um, and I'm using the term woman loosely. And yeah, he, he had them removed from the game. And it's been rumored that there were racial epithets. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Uh, it's also been rumored that uh, the woman was saying very bad things. Actually, both of them were saying horrible things about LeBron's son, Bronny, Bronny James. And if either are true, that man had every right to do what he did. Like, hold on, fuck this game. We got to get these motherfuckers out of here so the rest of the people can enjoy this game. And I'm not going to continue playing if these motherfuckers are going to blatantly disrespect me like that. Fuck you. Don't talk about my baby. I don't even have kids. And I don't even want people saying shit about my friend's kids. I'd feel a certain way. Don't talk about motherfuckers' kids. And apparently the things that were said about Bronny James were pretty graphic and immature. And I saw a picture of the couple. And either one is true. I'm not saying one or the other, but the motherfucker said some foul shit. I'm from the Midwest, and I've been in situations where I've overheard some old fucking grotesque-ass white chick say some old drunk shit, but you can't blame it on the alcohol, because motherfuckers say what they really want to say when they own that sauce, and they're in Indianapolis, they're in Indiana, which is just as much as fucking Midwestern hicks as Ohio, and I love Ohio, I love being from the Midwest. But facts are fucking facts. LeBron's from the Midwest. He might have grew up hearing some old fuck shit. From some Ohio Confederate. Who obviously isn't a history buff. Because we didn't partake in that fuck shit. Look in the books. Take that shit to Florida. But I digress. No, never. So yeah, and and then you got niggas, these fucking niggas in these NBA forums that I'm in on Facebook calling him the queen for making this move. The bitch, he's such a baby. Motherfucker, let somebody say some shit about your kids. Let somebody call you a nigga. Let somebody say some shit in your face. How would you feel? And motherfuckers think they can just get away with it. That's what kills me with these fans sometimes. They become empowered because they're strength in numbers. There's thousands of them watching these uh, 12-men teams, these 12-men rosters play. Ten on the court at once. And they're just thinking to themselves, ah, he, he won't come over here. He won't do anything. 
It'll ruin his money. It'll ruin his paycheck. There's no one now, no. Hey, some motherfuckers fuck around and find out. Yeah. At the end of the day, these motherfuckers are paid professional athletes. They work out more than you do. You couch cushion quarterback. I get it. As a fan, sometimes we get rabbit. Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves because we want our team to win. We dislike this player because he's on that other team trying to stop my team from winning. But there's a cap on this shit. There's a cap on the cap and fan. And when you pass that cap, you pass that border of respect. All that sports shit, statistics, that NBA, NFL, MLB shit goes out the window. Come to these events and watch the games respectfully within the realm of fandom. But all things November 28th, in the year 2000, Master P released the album Ghetto Postage, and it was no Ghetto D. It was no Ice Cream Man. In fact, I don't even remember what songs were off this album. But I fucks with P. In 2006, Clips released the album Hell Hath No Fury. And on that same day, Incubus released Light Grenades, and Ying Yang Twins released Chemically Imbalanced. In 2013, Hobson released the album Knock Madness, and in 2015, Billboard reported Adele's 25 sold 3.38 million in pure album sales in its first week of release. According to Nielsen Music, that's the largest single sales week for an album since Nielsen began tracking point-of-sale music purchases in 1991, surpassing the previous single week sales record held by NSYNC's No Strings Attached, which was 2.42 million sold in the week ending March 26, 2000. But more importantly to me than all of that fuck shit, in 1997, the final episode of Beavis and Budhead airs on MTV titled Beavis and Budhead Are Dead. And this was important to me because this spoke to my generation. For us 80s babies, us 90s kids, MTV was cutting edge at the time before they got lost in all of this reality showbiz. They were playing music videos and they had profound programming. Liquid Television, the Rock Jocks, Dan Cortez, Bill Bellamy, Cindy Crawford, Dennis Leary, Matt Pinfield. And Beavis and Budhead, they were primetime animation. They were late primetime. They they were later than primetime animation. So I couldn't watch a lot of their shows in the first airing because I I had a curfew. I had to be in bed. I had to be in bed before they even came to air. I believe Beavis and Butthead used to come on at 10 and 10.30. I had to be asleep by 10. But in the summer and on the Friday nights and the weekends, oh, that's when I got to catch up. 
and it's lost its flavor over the years. By 97, I think we were kind of over it. South Park had just started. Simpsons kind of pretty much placed their hat in the GOAT conversation at this point. And Family Guy was right around the corner. And also, the creator, Mike Judge, he had already created another show, King of the Hill, which had debuted in 96. So maybe he had already moved on from Beavis and Butthead. And he was starting to make movies. Office Space. Idiocracy. But Beavis and Butthead, like I said, they spoke to us 80s babies, us 90s kids. They represented the pothead culture. They represented what teenagers were doing in real life, watching music videos and talking about how much this artist sucks, this song is stupid, shitting on your homies, you're a fart knocker, doing dumb shit, beating up frogs with bats just because it was a thing. We could do it. You could do it. Like nigga knocking. Prank calling. Just directionless youth. That's what the 90s represented. The age of the anti-hero. And Beavis and Budhead, they were idiots. They were no heroes. There was no bravery. They really had no redeeming quality. But that was them. And we loved them for it because it was the 90s. And people like that are really out there. There are people like Beavis and Butthead that exist that are just that fucking stupid. Anytime you have two options, you could do this thing, the upstanding thing. Or you can do this really dumbass thing that won't work in your favor at all. And they'll pick the latter every time, in every way, any scenario, any situation. I definitely don't pattern myself after Beavis and Butthead, but I know some Beavis and Buttheads. And Beavis and Butthead, they serve as a cautionary tale. Yes, they're entertaining for animation on television. But to be around someone like that in real life, oh my God. But in 1997, November 28th, MTV aired the original finale because they brought it back. They retooled it and brought it back in the early 2010s, I believe 2011. But this was the original finale, November 28th, 1997. Beavis and Butthead are dead. Today in sports history, in 1895, America's first auto race organized by the Chicago Times Herald from Chicago to Evanston and back included six cars and went 55 miles. Frank Durier wins averaging seven miles per hour. In 1925, NHL goalie Georges Vezina collapses and dies four months later of TB. 
1929, Chicago Cardinal fullback Ernie Nevers sets an NFL record for most points scored in a single game, with all 40 in the Cardinals' 40-6 route of the Chicago Bears. Nevers has an NFL record of six touchdowns and four extra points. In 1938, the fourth Heisman Trophy is awarded to Davey O'Brien, quarterback for Texas Christian. In 1944, Detroit Tigers pitcher Hal Neuhauser is named American League MVP. In 1955, the NFL Draft is held. Gary Glick from the University of Colorado A&M is the first pick by the Pittsburgh Steelers. In 1957, Warren Spahn of the Braves wins the Cy Young Award. In 1964, the NFL Draft is held again. Tucker Fredrickson from Auburn University is the first pick by the New York Giants. In 1967, the 33rd Heisman Trophy Award is presented to Gary Beban, quarterback of UCLA. In 1969, Ted Sizemore becomes the seventh Dodger to win the National League Rookie of the Year. In 1974, Bowie Kuhn suspends George Steinbrenner for two years. In 1975, Bobby Orr plays his last game for the Boston Bruins. In 1978, the 44th Heisman Trophy Award is presented to Billy Sims, running back of Oklahoma. In 1978, the Cincinnati Reds fire manager Sparky Anderson after nine years. In 1979, Los Angeles Dodger Rick Sutcliffe wins the National League Rookie of the Year. In 1981, Bear Bryant wins his 315th game to outdistance Almos Alonzo Stagg, becoming college football's winningest coach. In 1989, Ricky Henderson signs a record at the time $3 million deal per year with the Oakland A's. In 1999, in an All-American Final, Pete Sampras beats Andre Agassi to win his fifth and final ATP Tour World Championship. In 2010, in a classic matchup, Roger Federer wins his fifth season-ending ATP World Tour Finals tennis title over Rafael Nadal. And in 2015, British boxer Tyson Fury beats Ukrainian Vladimir Klitschko by unanimous decision to win the WBA, WBO, IBF, IBO, The Ring Magazine, and lineal heavyweight titles in Dusseldorf, Germany, ends Klitschko's nine-year reign as champion. And that was my half-fast sports report. Coming up, we're going to take a trip down memory lane, a retelling of the final episode of Beavis and Butthead, as it aired on this day in 1997. We'll be black after these messages. Today's birthdays for November 28th. Turning 37 today is American R&B singer, songwriter, and actor Trey Songs. Also turning 37 today is Australian basketball player and former number one draft pick Andrew Bogut. Turning 39 today is Brazilian basketball player Leandro Barbosa. Uh, he was also a former warrior. You know what? Fuck your birthday. Happy 42nd birthday to American rapper, entrepreneur, and investor, Chameleonaire, one of the most slept-on rappers from the South. So underrated. Severely underrated. Turning 43 today is American football player Freddie Mitchell. You know what, he was a former Eagle. Fuck your birthday too. Happy 56th birthday to American baseball player and manager Matt Williams, former Indian, Go Ohio. Happy 59th birthday to American comedian, actor, and television host John Stewart. 
Also turning 59 today is American drummer and songwriter of the band Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, Matt Cameron. Turning 62 today is American actor and screenwriter Judd Nelson. Turning 71 today is American actor and producer Ed Harris. Happy 72nd birthday to Canadian-American singer, keyboard player, and band leader Paul Schaefer. Turning 78 today is American singer, songwriter, composer, and pianist Randy Newman. He's the guy from the Toy Story song, and he's done a lot of other jingles for animation and other movies. Uh, he just always sounds like his tongue got swallowed. Uh, let me tell you a little story about a toy named Woody. But happy birthday, man. Turning 79 today is American football player and sportscaster Paul Warfield. And a very special happy 92nd birthday to American songwriter, producer, and the founder of Motown Records, the man himself, Barry Gordy Jr. I ain't know no extra let go shit. I'm on the extra retro shit. They told me to wrap it up like a bag of gifts, but I said I'm the man like an established whip. Show them how to make that hit. Top charts and crews and all battleships. So we break battles, make beats, take scars. I am one of the last of you to take charge. Bumper cassette steel, loonies to flex. Make a shot like my name was Lex Steel. Checking for rec skills, looking at text bills. Frustration and determination, now I'm looking for X bills with special shield. Accent from Miss Jackson. I made this dirt roll so my beat leave patterns. And I made movies live hard, play rough. And all I seem to be is dust. Calm, calm, stare, resting in a lawn chair Man, I've been a mess since I left with golden blonde hair What I don't understand is how it's handed till my hand break Mad because I'm average, sad, stranded in these damn lakes Mediocre miracles, it happens, they don't play me though They don't want me quoting Steve G, fuck radio We're laying in the shade, four spades and one white dude If we play in WA, then J-O-B, Ice Cube Yesterday's hero, I am 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 yesterday's hero, I
Smoking that Sherman's in an empty bar in Brooklyn Thinking about my days on stage, homies were shook then I remember cold nights in December Everybody wanted some of my limelight, my rhymes tight Sound like Cobain on a good day Puffin' her shade with Ron J, perfecting wordplay Now I'm going off of hearsay People associating my career with doomsday Just another news day in the life of a man So trife with the mic How I go from taking flight to trying to take my own life Is what you make it Suicide, few try to take it Sitting in my bathtub, bloody naked Just the thoughts of a boss who once had it all A juggernaut of this rap shit My downfall was too much floss and too much sauce Career up in smoke, I has been Reminiscing rhymes I wrote In a special mention to those no longer with us, this past Friday we lost American composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim. Born Stephen Joshua Sondheim on March 22, 1930 in New York City, he's one of the most important figures in 20th century musical theater, and Sondheim was praised for having reinvented the American musical, with shows that tackled unexpected themes that ranged far beyond the genre's traditional subjects, with music and lyrics of unprecedented complexity and sophistication. His shows addressed darker, more harrowing elements of the human experience, with songs often tinged with ambivalence about various aspects of life. Sondheim's best-known works as composer and lyricist include A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum in 1962, Company in 1970, Follies in 1971, A Little Night Music in 1973, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street in 1979, Sunday in the Park with George in 1984, and Into the Woods in 1987, he was also known for writing the lyrics for West Side Story in 1957 and Gypsy in 1959. Sondheim's accolades include eight Tony Awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Tony in 2008, an Academy Award, eight Grammy Awards, a Pulitzer Prize, a Laurence Olivier Award, and a 2015 Presidential Medal of Freedom. He also had a theater name for him on Broadway and in the West End of London. Sondheim wrote film music, contributing Goodbye For Now for Warren Beatty's Reds in 1981. 
He wrote five songs for 1990s Dick Tracy, including Sooner or Later, I Always Get My Man, sung in the film by Madonna, which won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Film adaptations of Sondheim's work include West Side Story in 1961, Gypsy in 1962, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum in 1966, A Little Night Music in 1977, Gypsy again in 1993, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street in 2007, Into the Woods in 2014, West Side Story again in 2021, and Merrily We Roll Along to be announced. Sondheim has been described as introverted and solitary. In an interview with Frank Rich, he said the outsider feeling, somebody who people want to both kiss and kill, occurred quite early in my life. He did not come out as gay until he was 40. He lived with dramatist Peter Jones for eight years in the 1990s. The composer married Jeffrey Scott Romley in 2017, and they lived in Manhattan in Roxbury, Connecticut. Sondheim died at his home in Roxbury, Connecticut on November 26, 2021, at the age of 91. The cause of his death has not been publicly disclosed. This past Saturday, we lost professional American football player Curly Culp. Born on March 10, 1946 in Yuma, Arizona, he was an offensive and defensive lineman. Playing college football at Arizona State University, was the NCAA heavyweight wrestling champion while at ASU and played professionally in the American Football League for the Kansas City Chiefs in 1968 and 1969 and in the National Football League for the Chiefs, the Houston Oilers and Detroit Lions. He was an AFL All-Star in 1969 and a six-time AFC-NFC Pro Bowler. Culp announced on November 16, 2021, that he had been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. He died 11 days later at the age of 75. Anna Nicole Smith was an American model, actress, and television personality. Born Vicki Lynn Hogan on November 28, 1967 in Houston, Texas, Smith first gained popularity in Playboy magazine when she won the title of 1993 Playmate of the Year. She modeled for fashion companies, including Guess, H&M, Heatherette, and Lane Bryant. Smith dropped out of high school at the age of 14 in 1982, married in 1985, and divorced in 1993. In 1994, her highly publicized second marriage to 89-year-old billionaire J. Howard Marshall resulted in speculation that she married him for his money, which she denied. Following Marshall's death in 1995, Smith began a lengthy legal battle over a share of his estate. Her cases reached the Supreme Court of the United States, Marshall v. Marshall, on a question of federal jurisdiction, and Stern v. Marshall, on a question of bankruptcy court authority. On the afternoon of February 8, 2007, Smith was found unresponsive in room 607 at the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Hollywood, Florida. The wife of Smith's bodyguard, who was an emergency registered nurse, performed CPR for 15 minutes until the bodyguard took over. He had driven back to the hotel after being notified by his wife of Smith's condition. According to Seminole Police Chief Charlie Tiger, at 1.38 p.m. local time, Smith's bodyguard, who was also a trained paramedic, called the hotel front desk from Smith's sixth floor room. The employee at the front desk in turn called the hotel security guard, who then called 911. At 1.45 p.m., the bodyguard administered CPR until paramedics arrived. At 2.10 p.m., Smith was rushed to Memorial Regional Hospital, where she was pronounced dead on arrival at 2.49 p.m. 
An investigation was led by Broward County Medical Examiner and Forensic Pathologist Joshua Perber in conjunction with Seminole Police and several independent forensic pathologists and toxicologists. Perper announced that Smith died of combined drug intoxication with the sleeping medication chloral hydrate as the major component. No illegal drugs were found in her system. The official report states that the, her death was not considered to be due to homicide, suicide, or natural causes. Additionally, an official copy of the autopsy report was publicly released on March 26, 2007, and can be found online. She was 39 at the time of her death. Roy Tarpley was an American professional basketball player. Born Roy James Tarpley on November 28, 1964 in New York City, he played the power forward and center positions in the National Basketball Association, earning an NBA Sixth Man of the Year award in 1988. Tarpley was banned from the NBA because of his drug and alcohol abuse. He played for Europe, for Olympiacos, Aris, and Araklis. Tarpley died on January 9, 2015 at the age of 50. No official cause of death was released, but reports indicated that it was due to liver failure. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1997, Beavis and Budhead are dead aired on television. Beavis and Budhead Are Dead is the 41st episode of the seventh season of the animated American television sitcom Beavis and Budhead and aired for the first time in the United States on November 28, 1997 on MTV. The episode was the 200th and last of the original series and in a rare move for the series was a full-length episode. As school starts at Highland High, Mr. Van Driesen announces roll call. For the third week in a row, Beavis and Butthead are absent from school, and Van Driesen goes to Principal McVicker's office to let him know of his concerns. McVicker does not care, telling Van Driesen to deal with it himself, but is eventually convinced to have his secretary, Miss Tress, call their home to speak with their parents. At home, we find out the reason why Beavis and Butthead have not been going to school. They cannot find anything good to watch on TV. As they keep flipping through the channels and eating junk food, Beavis hears their phone ringing, and Budhead tells him to make it stop. Beavis answers, and when Miss Tress asks where the boys have been, Beavis says to her, yeah, they're dead, and hangs up, then goes back into the living room. Meanwhile, Miss Tress relays what Beavis told her to Mick Vicker and Van Driesen. The two men have completely opposite reactions. Van Driesen, in disbelief that two of his students have died, grieves, while McVicker is overjoyed at the fact that, at least as far as he knows, he will never have to deal with Beavis or Butthead again. Van Driesen, in tears, decides to go back to class and break the news to them in private, but McVicker goes on the school loudspeaker and yells triumphantly to the student body and the faculty that Beavis and Butthead have met their demise. The students, meanwhile, could not care less, and Van Driesen tries to get them to share their feelings or memories as he does, although all of them ended badly for him. 
The only student willing to speak up is Daria Morgendorfer, only after being asked to, and even though she is sad to hear that Beavis and Butthead are gone, she reinforces the point that the duo were not destined for bright futures. Van Driesen thanks Daria for sharing her thoughts and being honest about them, and only hopes that the two found what they were looking for in their failed lives. Back at the home, Beavis and Butthead have not found what they are looking for still. More and more channels have been flipped through, and they still cannot find something to watch. Butthead finally says that if he does not see some boobs or butts soon, he is going to become pretty pissed off. <laughs> Meanwhile, the mood among the teachers is still joyous, as everyone is drinking champagne and toasting to the downfall of Beavis and Butthead. When Van Driesen suggests that they stop celebrating and instead show some respect to the dead, a furious coach Buzzcut talks down to him, saying that it took everything he had not to kill both of them and that he hoped their deaths were slow and painful. Undeterred, Van Driesen suggests that the school start a fund in Beavis and Butthead's memory for scholarships. McVicker agrees to the fund, but instead wants to use it to raise money for other things around the school, such as a new teacher's lounge, claiming that the boys owe the school money for all the damage they caused over the years. Shortly thereafter, Beavis and Butthead finally find something worth watching, as the local TV station has a report on dead bodies at the school. Since the two do not realize that they are the dead people everyone is talking about, they simply watch as a girl Butthead tried to score with and Stuart reminisce. Beavis wants to know where the dead bodies are, and finally he and Butthead decide to go down to the school to check them out. Meanwhile, Van Driesen has taken up a collection for the fun, and to McVicker's annoyance, has collected mostly pennies in a glass jar. However, McVicker is happy about all the attention that the deaths of Beavis and Butthead has brought to the school and says that things have not been this good since President Clinton visited. As he continues to bask in his glorious moment, a reporter asks McVicker about the fun. He immediately changes his tone and begins speaking and acting like Van Driesen regarding the fun as well as faking grief over the loss of Beavis and Butthead. He ends the interview by saying he would give all the money away so he could see Beavis and Butthead alive again, and almost on cue. Butthead emerges from the crowd and demands McVicker give him the jar. A clueless Beavis looks around for the dead bodies, still completely unaware that he was one of the assumed dead, while Butthead tries to pry the jar away from McVicker as the cameras catch everything. As he tries to keep Butthead from taking the change, McVicker has a series of flashbacks that become faster and more intense the longer he fights Butthead. The stress from the flashbacks eventually breaks McVicker and he collapses to the ground, suffering a heart attack. Beavis is finally excited to see a dead body, while a furious buzz cut knocks out the camera as he tries to save McVicker's life with CPR. As the chaos at the school continues, Beavis and Butthead start walking back home, making fun of McVicker's heart attack and buzz cut for quote-unquote making out with him. When Beavis suggests they go back to school in case someone else dies, Butthead tells him that with the money in the jar he stole from McVicker, they are now rich and do not have to go to school ever again. As they walk off into midday sun, Beavis responds to Butthead's remark by saying, That's pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you, Mike Judge. Pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you, Beavis and Butthead. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. Please make sure to check out my other show, Happened in the 90s, with my buddy Matt G every Thursday, as well as our sister show, Crushgasm, with Kendra every Wednesday. Happy birthday, Grandma. Love you. Y'all be cool now. Peace.